Welcome to Healthy Dialogue, the podcast of the Alliance of Community Health Plans. Here's your host, ACHB CEO, Cece Connolly. Welcome to the third installment of Healthy Dialogue, where we're trying to piece together the conditions, the ideas, the norm-breaking innovations that can put our healthcare system on a better path. You know, we talk a lot about relationships in healthcare. Usually it's in the context of the patient-physician relationship, and we stress the need for open communication, shared responsibility, and collaboration. But those same objectives don't always apply to the relationship between the payers in healthcare and the providers. And that's because most of the time, the providers, the doctors, the nurses, hospitals are not colleagues to the payers. Most of the time, they're sitting across each other at a bargaining table, haggling over their share of the healthcare dollar. When you hear the phrase misaligned financial incentives, this is what we're talking about. Look, don't get me wrong. Everybody needs to make a living. And unfortunately, in a fragmented fee-for-service environment, the players don't share in the goals or the payment. Happily, there are some exceptions. Those organizations in which payers and providers are aligned for a common purpose. They talk to each other, brainstorm together, and design approaches that work for both parties. And most importantly of all, the health of the community. Okay, shameless plug, most of those payer-provider-aligned organizations are, in fact, members of ACHP. We really believe in this stuff. And today, we're going to talk about some of the really cool, super practical ideas that can result from such a relationship. We'll be joined in a little while by two women who lead different entities, one a payer, one provider. In any other situation, they'd probably be adversaries. Instead, they're partners in making healthcare better. But first, I wanted to share something that I think is really cool. Located in Utah, the state with the highest birth rate in the country, Intermountain Healthcare and its health plan, Select Health, are improving health outcomes for moms and babies by collaborating. That's right coming together to make super significant changes to the way healthcare is delivered. Now go back to 2001 when the two teamed up to focus on reducing the incidence of often dangerous early elective inductions of labor. The goal was to lower the risk of infection, reduce the need for C-sections, improve pregnancy outcomes, and reduce NICU admissions. Because of their long-standing collaborative partnership between payer and provider, Select Health and Intermountain were able to make significant changes that cut their rate of early elective inductions from 27% to zero. Let me repeat, to zero. Of course, this took several years, but they did it, and they did it by collaborating. They made great strides in improving communication between the health plan and the clinical teams about evidence-based guidelines, and ultimately, they prohibited payment for unapproved, inappropriate, early elective inductions, and they eliminated them altogether. This resulted in shorter labors, fewer C-sections, and yeah, savings of about $2.5 million per year. The payment model was so successful that it has been replicated for five other surgical procedures, including hip and knee replacements. 
payers and providers are working together. Maybe they're on to something. Today, we are joined by a duo of inspiring, motivated women healthcare CEOs, Dr. Susan Turney of Marshfield Clinic and Julie Brusso of Security Health Plan. Together, they are taking the industry by storm from rural Wisconsin, and I am so pleased to call them friends. Julie, Sue, welcome to Healthy Dialogue. Hi, Cece. And I know you were coming from one of our favorite locations, Marshfield, Wisconsin. And we want to jump right into this topic of what we like to call the ACHP model. And it's really about payer provider partnerships based in a community. And so, Julie, maybe I can start with you and just tell me a couple of the things that really stand out about this model. Thank you, Cece. To me, the characteristics or the highlights of an integrated payer-provider model are coordination of care, which will boost quality, outcomes, and experience for our patients, innovation around the site of care, and affordability of care, largely because of that coordination and the ability to innovate. If you think about a more fragmented experience for the patient, where you may go to one provider for clinical care, a different organization for your lab work, and yet another organization for hospital care, all of that fragmentation adds cost for the patient and worsens coordination of care and ultimately decreases patient experience. So Sue, as you think about this payer-provider aligned model, does it in fact prioritize value for patients and also clinicians? You know, there's always opportunity when you have a fully integrated health system, and there are always financial incentives. But I think the real key here is what the payer-provider model really allows is a greater level of experimentation. And the experimentation is around how we deliver care and how we pay for that service. When payers and providers are separate organizations, the large payers don't have that significant incentive to experiment unless it impacts a large number of enrollees. It really just isn't worth that administrative lift for them to change their processes and procedures for a small number of enrollees. The advantage of having that fully integrated system is that we can be more nimble. So Sue, if we can stick with that for a moment here, because this notion of experimentation and your ability to even start with a small patient population if you've got a creative idea. So there you are, the leader of a health system. You think you've got an idea. How does your partnership with Julie and Security Health Plan enable you to maybe try new things? And I think a real good example of that is our home recovery care program. It really is an excellent model that bundles the cost of services with the goal of providing the care that patients need during the acute period in their home. And then what we do is combine this with extensive care coordination. When we started this program several years ago, we started with six medical conditions because we wanted to make sure that everything worked. 
We included asthma, acute bronchitis, dehydration, and colitis, but then expanded it from these six conditions to 153 diagnosis-related groups. So we take the clinical side of it and use state-of-the-art telehealth systems that allows the care team to really monitor a patient's status, including vital signs and exams, and communicate directly with a physician and the patient, and then bundle the services of that package in a way that the payment is commensurate with the needs of what needs to be done. The exciting news about this program is that we were able to reduce costs by 17 to 30% compared to a typical hospital admission. Even better, it produced a 55% reduction in readmissions and a 38% reduction in average length of stay when we compared to our hospitals and patient satisfaction has continued at about a 98% level. So we launched this model, and it would not have been possible if we didn't have a willing partner with our health plan. We knew there was some risk, and not in the way we delivered care, but in making the model work, taking the patient from an inpatient status to a hospital-at-home model. And this collaboration worked. We sat down side-by-side. Again, we thought about what was best for our patients, how we could collaborate to make it happen. I want to drill down on some of those statistics because they really are quite impressive. But Julie, I have to ask, you know, when this idea first kind of bubbled up, there you are running a health plan, you're trying to manage costs, you want to keep your premiums low, manage risk. What was your first thought? And How has the experience unfolded from a health plan perspective? We knew that we were aligned in our mission to enrich lives, but also to really take a hard look at that total cost of care. We keep our patients really at the center of everything that we do. And so when we looked at what the possibility was, we knew that this was something that we believed working together we could be successful at. It means that patients saved about $860,000 in costs. And that was across 442 episodes. That comes out to be about $2,000 per episode that we were able to realize. So it's very significant, the impact that it has made on our patients. I want to be devil's advocate here a little bit, Sue, and broaden the perspective maybe to our U.S. health system. I mean, $2,000 per episode, that's real money anywhere these days, but especially in the Marshfield, Wisconsin area. So Sue, I have to ask you as a national healthcare leader, why aren't we seeing more of these sorts of approaches? Changing models of care is not easy. If it were easy, all the good thoughts that we have about redesign would be already implemented. Our health system in the U.S. is very complex, 
And the payment system adds layers of complexity because we're dealing with government-funded programs. We're dealing with private insurance. And many of the plans have different policies and procedures in place as to how they will cover for services that are provided in the care setting. Also, the ability to implement these programs is challenging. And you have to look at your patient population and think about what is most important for our patients, for their families and our communities. And Julie mentioned this a little bit, and I'm going to just add a little more context. We serve a very wide geography. I believe we cover 45,000 square miles, and it's not densely populated. People have to travel sometimes more than an hour or two for an office visit. For families that are working in small businesses that don't have the ability to take paid time off, or don't have childcare in order to transport an elderly parent or family member for a visit, we knew that we had to start thinking differently, not just about the traditional virtual care for office visits, but about the home recovery care program. Because we knew that it was going to meet the patient's needs where they are at. And we felt that with the health plan as our partner, that this was really a unique opportunity to create the home recovery care, and that we could make it economically viable within our system. But there are many places in the country where it may be more challenging to make that happen. Julie, just now that we are also (laughs) adding into the complexity of it all, the COVID-19 pandemic, how has that outbreak potentially made at-home care more attractive? Are are you seeing some greater interest in that approach? Yes, I believe that the concept, the program is indeed an, an attractive alternative, not only for families, but also for our care delivery colleagues. Patients and providers want to take every precaution that they can during the pandemic and really have safety be front and center. And one way to dramatically reduce the risk for whether you're the patient or the provider is to allow them to receive care telephonically, through telehealth, and in the home where it's possible. Every bit of in-person contact that we can reduce while still delivering high-quality care is really important. But you can imagine that we also have other unique challenges. We might have challenges on the technology front, and access to high-speed internet can also be a barrier for many of our patients. According to Pew Research, rural Americans are 12% less likely than Americans overall to have home broadband. This is real, and, and we can see this within our own patient population. It's an issue, but it's also an issue that I think working together, we can help bring to light. But this is something that urgently demands our attention. So Sue, in that that future vision where you're thinking a lot more about home-based care or in the community, for instance, obviously technology challenges, but that vision of yours, can you give us a little sense of, you know, what might be in store for the future patients and members of Security Health and and Marshfield? 
Well, I would hate to give away our secrets, right? <laughs> but I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing because I think it is important because this isn't this is the beginning. So again, I'm going to start with our objective, which is really to serve our patients better by letting them receive the care where they want it and how they want it. And we all know that being in a hospital is not always the best place to recover and get well. So meeting patients where they're at is the objective and meeting them in their home, whether it's for home recovery care in the hospital at home program or post-acute recovery. It might be at our local YMCA or other community center. We basically need to weave care, weave those resources, the education directly into the fabric of our communities so that, again, being the payer and the provider, we have a true system of care that really allows us to continually consider or reconsider, I guess, how we treat patients and in what setting. Let me close, Julie, with your insights on public policy. And obviously, there's a lot that you and Sue and your teams are able to do in part because of this terrific payer-provider partnership that, that you all have. And yet we know that the regulatory and legislative landscape can help or hinder. So when you think about payment policy changes, do you have any recommendations for policymakers that would help accelerate this move toward value? I do. And these are topics that we have been talking about for years and, and, and talking with our lawmakers. But for Medicare and Medicaid, allowing for a site of service in the home setting is really critical, which is not allowed today. We do have some temporary flexibilities that have been shared with us and, and that have been extended during the pandemic but because of some of these things not having a more permanent approach, they will continue to be a challenge. We have a very robust Medicare Advantage program here at Security Health Plan. We've been operating our Medicare Advantage program since 2002. And because of that, we have been able to accommodate some of the great innovative programs that we collectively have rolled out here in Marshfield. And the home recovery care is one of those benefits and, and care models that we have been able to weave into our coverage. We are working to integrate the home recovery care program into the Medicaid program for 2021. But again, this is all a work in progress. My humble opinion is that innovation often follows the money. And fee-for-service Medicare still carries a lot of weight and has a significant number of beneficiaries enrolled. Allowing for alternative places of service for fee-for-service Medicare and Medicaid, I think would be a great step forward. It will spur innovation and we all know that when we have the opportunity to spur innovation, we can improve quality. We can improve outcomes. The patient experience will be improved. And, and 
really importantly, the affordability factor can also be achieved as well. Well, this has been such a terrific conversation. I know we could keep on talking, but I just want to say a special thank you to Dr. Sue Turney and Julie Brusso for joining us on Healthy Dialogue today. Thank Thank you. you. And we'll be back with more of ACHP's Healthy Dialogue after a quick message from our sponsor. Want to learn how your health plan peers are delivering unique member experiences that keep members engaged and amplify existing outreach strategies? Our preferred business sponsor, HealthCrowd, drives real member engagement with an omni-channel outreach approach that drives better results. HealthCrowd's compliant digital communication platform uses relevant technology, such as texting, to bring scale to outreach and drive more members to action. To learn more, visit healthcrowd.com. Today we are joined by thought leader and provocative mind, Ovik Roy, president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. An accomplished healthcare author, Ovik has also advised multiple presidential candidates over the years. In the midst of a heated election focused on health, we are excited to talk to him today. Ovik, welcome to Healthy Dialogue. Hey, Cece, how are you? Doing well. I'm so pleased. We're going to cover a few important healthcare topics, but in particular, I really want to start with affordability. It's on the mind of, I think, everyone these days, and maybe more so if the economy continues to falter and with it value. And so, from your perspective, how do we make some real meaningful changes to our system that we can? get to affordability in the years ahead. There are basically two schools of thought that somewhat overlap, but they're really two discrete schools of thought about what the problem is with the high cost of U.S. healthcare. On the one hand, you have the scholars of waste who say that if we could just get rid of the 30% of wasteful utilization of healthcare, defensive medicine, overutilization of certain procedures or tests, things like that. If we just if we just had that got rid of that 30% of wasteful utilization, everything would be fine. We we would make our healthcare system more affordable, more in line with international norms. The other school of thought, and this is a school of thought that I'm in, is was made most famous by Princeton economist Uwe Reinhardt, who said it's the price is stupid. That the biggest problem, if you compare the U.S. to other countries, is not utilization of healthcare. We actually, in certain ways, use healthcare less than other countries. What you see is you see a lot of people talk about the utilization part because it's more comfortable, right? If you are, if you're the, the CEO of a drug company, right, it's a lot easier to say, "Well, gosh, let's make sure we we limit wasteful utilization because pricing practices are are more about something you have more direct control over." But that is inescapably what a close look at the data tells you that it's the high prices that are being charged in the U.S. healthcare system that are the problem. So I want to follow up on prices, and I'm right there with you, but, and maybe I'm cheating a little bit here because I want to answer it's both. And so before we get to prices, can you at least just clarify for us, do you see waste in the U.S. system? Any, maybe it's not as big as some people suggest, but would you agree there is some that's inappropriate, low value, maybe even dangerous. 
Absolutely. I'm not saying that there is not wasteful utilization. There, of course, there is. But the question, or at least the macro question that we often ask ourselves is why is U.S. healthcare more expensive than healthcare in Switzerland, in Germany, in France, in the U.K., and Canada? And on that score, it's not really as much about utilization as I think a lot of people believe. It's much more about the unit prices of the care that's being delivered. So yes, by all means, let's continue to innovate on the score of limiting wasteful utilization. But this is where our system of private insurance is doing reasonably good work. If you look at Medicare Advantage and you compare Medicare Advantage to the traditional fee-for-service Medicare program, for example, the Medicare Advantage insurers, the plans are delivering the same benefits, in fact, sometimes more benefits, at a lower cost per person than the traditional Medicare program is. So clearly, the managed care plans in Medicare Advantage are delivering that promise of less wasteful utilization at approximately the same reimbursement rates to providers. So Ovik, how would you get at prices? And I'm going to borrow a phrase from, I'm sure, you know, uh, we can remember who first said this, but whose ox are you going to gore? (laughs) Great question. Well, I would put it this way. So in our research at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, we're in a sense, an all of the above, so we have an all of the above strategy for reducing prices. Our first choice, and our first choice always being competition, that at the end of the day, the most efficient and effective way to preserve quality and preserve the quality of care and improve the value of care is to encourage competition, whereby the best care, the best quality, the most innovative customer and patient service wins. Right. So that is that is the ideal. Wherever possible, we need to encourage more competition, and more value to the end user, to the patient. Part of the problem right now is that we have a system in which the patient rarely gets to realize the value if the patient chooses a lower cost, higher quality provider. That value goes to the insurance company or to the government, not necessarily to to the patient. And so there's a whole set of reforms around that, making sure that the patient realizes the value. And if the patient realizes the value, competition will naturally ensue if it's available. So that's an important part of the equation. A second area is prescription drugs that are branded and that have patents, particularly for biologic drugs, vaccines, and certain emerging categories of treatment, which are basically not genericizable. You hear a lot of people in the drug industry say, well, we should be able to charge really high prices during our branded phase because eventually the drug goes generic and society gets that drug basically for free for the rest of time. That's true for traditional drugs like Lipitor, the cholesterol-lowering drug that was originally manufactured by Pfizer. Once that drug went generic, the generic name of it's atorvastatin, that drug is basically free or near free to the general population. That's an incredible benefit to society. So there's an argument to be made for that. However, the fastest growing category of spending on prescription drugs is for biologic drugs that are manufactured out of living organisms, like many, if not most, of the modern cancer drugs. And those drugs are really not genericizable in the same way, partly because Congress and the FDA have structured it that way, but partly because the nature of biologic drugs is different than small molecules. They're, they're much more complex at the atomic level, and that means it's not as easy to guarantee that the, a biosimilar or generic biologic is exactly the same. So for those reasons, there's been a reluctance to create more competition. With vaccines and other viral-based therapies, it's even worse. So there are going to be certain areas where there's natural monopolies, and there, 
I would argue, and, and we would argue at FreeUp, that there's more of a role for government intervention to ensure that there's a level playing field between the monopolist on the one side that's supplying that medicine or hospital service and the buyers of that service, whether it's through how the government pays for that service or in the case of private insurers, giving private insurers more latitude from antitrust laws so that they can jointly negotiate those reimbursement rates. So sticking just another moment on the notion of cost, where does value-based purchasing or value-based models fit into your thinking? I think value-based models have a role. I I think their role to some degree has been overhyped or at least I'm I'm more cautious than a lot of people are about value-based reimbursement rates or reimbursement contracts. But I do think they have a role, particularly when it comes to hospital services, right? There, there there's a clear opportunity to reward hospitals that are able to manage patients in a way that leads to fewer readmissions, fewer complications, say post-operatively, things like that. You want to be able to reward providers that uh, that that are able to limit the cost after the person leaves the hospital setting. The challenge has been that in general, the percentage of provider payer contracts that are based on two-sided risk, where the hospital stands to lose money if that patient ends up costing, incurring more costs than, than the median or the average or the settled contracted rate. The hospitals really don't want to take that downside risk. And there are also certain adverse selection issues you have to worry about. You have to worry about hospitals maybe trying to game the system by not admitting or shunting patients with a lot of uh, comorbidities or other characteristics that would lead them to be higher risk. On the pharma side, I'm much more pessimistic about the utility of value-based contracts. And let me explain why. Because what you basically have, for example, is a, in, a, in a drug context is, well, someone will say, well, if, uh, if the drug has a positive, if the patient has a positive outcome on the drug, we'll, we'll charge you more. And if we have a negative patient outcome on the drug, we'll charge you less or we'll charge you nothing. Right? Sounds great. But that, those are all qualitative statements. What matters is the numbers. So let's say a drug costs $100 now for every patient, regardless of outcome. And now we switch to a value-based contract where we pay $50 for a negative outcome and $1,000 for a positive outcome. Well, that could lead to actually the drug company making more money, right? Because the, if, if enough people have positive outcomes, that could actually lead to more money versus you know, less revenue overall, right? So the numbers actually matter. So we are in an election season. You, of course, have been a, a senior policy advisor to a number of the Republican presidential nominees over the years. In the Democratic primaries this year, there was a lot of talk about Medicare for All, and you put out a report titled Medicare Advantage for All. And so I want to ask you just to quickly for our listeners who haven't had a chance to read that, why you're so bullish on MA. Well, thanks for mentioning that. I mean, I uh, I alluded to it a bit earlier, right? We we have compelling and overwhelming evidence at this point that Medicare Advantage plans outperform fee for service, especially in non-rural areas. In rural areas, it's more of a, f- a fair fight, you might say, but but in areas where managed care plans are able to get providers to compete with one another on the patient's behalf. That model is working, and it's working incredibly well. The CMS actuary predicted in 2010 when the Affordable Care Act passed that enrollment in Medicare Advantage would go down by 50% because the ACA 
cut reimbursement rates for MA plans from $1.14 on average per fee-for-service uh, patient or fee-for-service life to covered life to a dollar. So the, this was supposed to destroy Medicare Advantage. Instead, Medicare Advantage enrollment has continued to grow to the point where in a decade or two, it's it's very likely that a majority of seniors will be on Medicare Advantage plans. I think that's what the plans themselves see as time goes on, as they iterate, as they learn from big data, as they get better and better every year at managing different types of, of complex patients, chronic disease and the like. So so that, that, that trend, I think, should widen over time. And again, we'll close here, you know, super simple, because you have, in fact, helped Republican presidential nominees over the years craft substantive, ambitious, comprehensive healthcare agendas. So I am going to ask you just to close here in this fall season, how would you rate the Trump administration record on health care, whether it's access, cost, drug prices, tell us your assessment. So in 2010, 2009, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, the conversation that often took place in, in meetings like you and ICC would be in or, or people that you were then covering, because <laughs> I think you were, you were a journalist in, in 2010, mm-hmm. we, the conversation that we, we'd often have was, well, the ACA is not really about cost control. It's about coverage expansion. And once we take care of the coverage expansion, then we'll turn to cost control in in the ensuing years. Well, I think one of the kind of interesting twists to that to that thesis has been that it's Donald Trump actually who has most aggressively tried to tackle healthcare costs. It's it doesn't get maybe the headlines that a lot of other things he does get. But there has been no president, I would argue. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I have been a critic of the president in many ways, but on this issue, I think he deserves a lot more credit than he gets. Let's talk about provider prices first. The the rule that 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 uh, the set of rules that the administration has put forward on the requirement to disclose a payer provider negotiated rates is going to be a total revolution. If it if it if it gets uh, upheld in the courts, that's going to lead to an acceleration of price competition, and it's going to hold providers accountable for the prices they charge, and frankly, also payers for whether or not they're doing a good job negotiating deals for the employers and individuals that they serve. So to me, that's going to be an incredible source of innovation, competition, and transparency into the high price of U.S. healthcare. The second thing where he's had less progress to date, but where he's done a lot to change the debate is drug prices. He has been incredibly aggressive and forceful as a critic of high monopolistic drug prices and is trying to do a lot. In many ways, uh, he's dealing with a lot of critics from his own side on how to reduce the the cost and burden and prices of prescription drugs. And so while he hasn't gotten all the way there, some of the executive orders he's recently announced, if they're fully implemented, will, particularly on the Medicare side, reduce what seniors and taxpayers pay for prescription drugs in that setting. And he wants to do a lot more. And uh, if he's lucky enough to have a second term, I'm sure he'll certainly try to. Well, I think on that note, we're going to have to stay tuned to see what sort of election results we get. But maybe maybe that's going to be an excuse to have Ovik Roy back on Healthy Dialogue in 2021. For right now, Ovik, thank you so much for this conversation. And Cece, thanks for all you and your members do to make healthcare better for all of us. Before we go any further, CC needs a minute. I'm going to go a little bit off topic here to close us out. 
Now, as many of our Healthy Dialogue listeners know, the first presidential debate is coming on September 29th, and we can only assume or hope that healthcare will get a little love from my old friend and the moderator, Chris Wallace. So, if you were Chris, or had a chance to bend his ear, what would you ask Donald Trump and Joe Biden? Here are some of the questions we'd love to hear. Let's start with, how would you provide access to high-quality coverage and care to every American? Do you agree the U.S. is not getting the best value for its healthcare dollar? And if you agree with that, how can the nation move to a high-value, equitable system? How about drug prices? We know they're breaking family budgets and forcing insurance premiums higher every year. How would you bring rationality to the pharmaceutical market? What's the most important public health lesson you've learned from the COVID pandemic? And how would you empower non-physician clinicians to help deliver affordable care? And last but certainly not least, will you pledge to make broadband available to every American so telehealth can be more easily delivered in rural areas and lower income neighborhoods? So those are just some of the questions I'm hoping Chris might pose the night of the debate. Ping us on Twitter and let us know what you'd ask the candidates if you were sitting in that moderator chair. We'll be back with episode four of Healthy Dialogue on September 29th. Yep, the same day as that presidential debate. And we'll have a terrific conversation with Shannon Brownlee from the Lown Institute and Diane Holder, CEO of UPMC Health Plan. Thanks for joining us on Healthy Dialogue and stay safe. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Healthy Dialogue. Learn more about the Alliance of Community Health Plans at echp.org and click the Add to Contacts button to connect directly with our team. We hope you'll also find us on Twitter at underscore ACHP and on LinkedIn. And if you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Reviews help new listeners find our podcast and hopefully spur more healthy dialogue out there.